Welcome to season two of my podcast. I must admit, I never thought I'd be doing a season two. This time last year, I rolled out the first podcast, which was with me. And since it's my birthday in January, I thought that I'd start every year, every new season with an update of what I've been up to. So episode one of every season will be me and what I've been doing. So I had a fabulous time last year interviewing 26 people on the podcast, that's including me. And we discussed many issues around health, especially reproductive health. But we talked about aging, exercise, menopause, fertility, big data, um, well-being, many, many different topics. And my aim with this podcast is to discuss topics that will help you have good health and happiness. And I have asked my guests at the end of each podcast, what makes them happy and where is their happy place? I think it's so important for us all to be having a happy place and enjoying ourselves. And I think our mental health and our physical health are so intertwined. So that's why I want everyone to have good health and happiness. So I did think long and hard at the end of last year about whether I should do a season two with the podcast, but I've spoke to a lot of people who said that they've really enjoyed it and really just a few people telling me they enjoy it is enough for me to keep going. And I love talking to people and there are so many amazing people out there that I did decide to continue at least for another year to see how it goes. Now, as always, the podcasts are going to come out on YouTube on the Tuesday and on all podcast channels. And I'm amazed how many different podcast channels there are. So it's going to come out on Wednesday every two weeks on uh, all the different podcast channels. And what I found totally amazing is that the podcast last year was listened to in 72 different countries. And the top countries were unexpectedly the UK followed by the USA, Canada, Ireland, and Australia. But quite unusually, we even had listeners in Zambia, uh, Papua New Guinea, um, Oman, Bhutan, and the Maldives. I think the Maldives was someone on holiday. (laughs) Um, So I have just released um, the first 15 guests that I will be having in season two, and you'll see that there's some amazing people on there that we'll be talking about all different issues uh, to do with our health. And if you follow me on Instagram or Twitter or X, should I say, or TikTok or LinkedIn, my handle is at Prof Joyce Harper, and you can find out who my guests will be for the coming year. I'm also been having a little look at Substack um, some of you might know, not know about this, but it's a, quite a new, well, I don't think it's a new platform. But it's a platform that is a place to write newsletters and for writers to write lots of other things. So I'm having a little play with that at the moment. So we'll see how it goes. Now, some of my podcasts were a bit long. <laughs> um, I've listened to obviously quite a few podcasts by other people. Um, I find the ones over an hour to be quite challenging. And there's even a few I'm sure you're aware of that are two hours So, um, some of mine did go over an hour. So, I'm trying this year with my guests to try and keep it to about 40 minutes. So, let's just see how long I do on this one. Probably, probably, I'm aiming for 40 minutes. Let's hopefully they will be there. 
Um, so thank you to everyone that's lis- listened to my podcast so far and to all my guests. And I'd really love to hear more of your feedback. Um, you can like it on all the podcast channels and it, and it will get a bit more um, views. So uh, please let me know. Um, I find it always really hard when I'm talking at conferences or to my students to just be the person that talks sort of at you. Um, and that's obviously a little bit like that in a podcast, even if you've just got one guest. Um, so I'd really love to hear what you think. And um, if you want anyone particular on and what you think about it. So let's have a look first. I've called this podcast Why We Need to Teach Everybody Reproductive Health. And that's because it's been my main area of research and projects over the last few years. So 2023 was really, really productive for me. And my (coughs) two big projects were both dealing with reproductive health education, one more broadly, which I'll tell you about now, and one specifically on the menopause, which I'll also tell you about. So all of my research that I do is published in the scientific literature, and we can now make sure that these are what we call open access. So you should be able to get access to them. Uh, Everyone should be able to get access to them. And I try to write my papers as simply as possible so that they can be understood by hopefully many people. So please have a look at my website, joyceharper.com. It's got a link there to my UCL website, which lists all my references. And I have been making some videos um, summarizing some of the key research projects that I've been doing. So I've done one series already, and I'm going to keep doing that in 2024. So 2023 was a productive year. Let me tell you first about the reproductive health education. So from puberty to the menopause. I've I've been working on this since 1987. And then I wrote my book, Your Fertile Years, which, which covered that. And then back in 2019, we set up the, which was originally called the International Fertility Education Initiative. But we changed the name last year. We took a bold step. And from the work I've been doing, I really realized that people link fertility too much with having a baby and I know that's what most people would think but in my head fertility is something that you are capable of whether you want children or not but anyway to make it more clear about exactly what we're doing we changed our name to our international group to reproductive the international reproductive health education collaboration So it's a really long name and the abbreviation is not that sexy, really, but we've called it IREC. Um, I'm not very good at making up these pseudonyms. Um, So I want to tell you a little bit of work that we've been doing in this area and what's going to be coming for 2024. So a few years ago, we decided to embed IREC in the largest fertility and reproductive health education, uh, sorry, um, society, They're not, not specifically working with education. Um, they are called ESHRA, which is the European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryology. And they had a gap for education. They really wanted to do that. And they tried to do that a few years ago. So we set up the IREC independently, but then 
chatted to Asher and said, why don't we work together? So we've been doing that and we've got a, a website and we want this website to produce lots of educational resources and also link to other educational resources that have already been developed. We want it to be a place where people can see what research is being published and we want everyone to access this website. So we want the public, teachers, young people, menopausal women, educators, um, uh, people doing research in this area, clinicians, health professionals. We want everyone to be able to access uh, a central place for the resources that will help them um, with these topics. So um, we, what did we do in 2023? Well, the first thing we did is we recorded six personal stories of people that have experienced some sort of reproductive health issue, including myself. I talk about my reproductive health journey. We have someone talking about endometriosis. We have two men talking about male infertility. So they are there um, now. Anyone can access them. And we hope that they are useful to some people. And we will expand these in the future. We are going to do more of these for sure, because we've we've heard from people in our research that um, hearing personal stories is very, very powerful. The big project we've been doing, which has been something I've really wanted to do now for about 10 years, is to help teachers in schools deliver these reproductive health topics. So we have finally now developed a teacher's education resource. Now, it's uh, it's just the start. It's just to get things going. We have made a one very, very large PowerPoint presentation. It's over 70 slides. And we do not think any teacher should just stand up there and deliver the 70 slides. We have separated the the slides into sections and what we want teachers to do is if they want to do something on pregnancy they can pull out the sections on pregnancy if they want to do something on menopause they can pull out the slides on menopause and we've written a guide to go with it with questions and things so that they could have an interactive session with their class we don't know how teachers are going to use it so the next step that we're developing this year is a project to work with teachers to see their perception of this teacher's resource. What did they like? What did they didn't like? What, how, how can we improve it to be more useful for them in the classroom? But just one step back, how, how did we develop this resource? Did we just sit there and some of us professionals decide how we think this should be done um, in schools and how teachers might like to use it? No, that's not how we did it. Everything we do now is something that we call co-design. So we get together with various groups. We do surveys or focus groups or interviews with them to ask them what they want and how they want it and their attitudes to how they have, for example, taught this before or if they're pupils, how they've been taught this before. So one thing we did was a survey of young people. In the UK, they were aged 16 to 18. and and this survey has been done in in the UK, Belgium, Greece and Japan. So some of this data now is coming out into publication. So the two papers from the UK are both now what we call in press. So they're just getting ready to be available for everyone to read. 
and the Belgian papers are coming closely behind and the Greek papers and, and Japan will, will slot in there as well. So we want to ask these young people in different countries how they feel about it and how it can be improved so we can hear from them what we need to do. So for one thing, for example, they wanted it in the UK they and Belgium, they wanted the education to be much more inclusive, um, including gender inclusive, etc. So, for example, when contraception's taught, they are the teacher often assuming that everyone in the class will need contraception. If you're in a same-sex relationship, then obviously you don't need contraception. So those sorts of things, they really want that, um, you know, spelt out to teachers. Over the last few years, I've also given lots of talks in schools across England. And by giving these talks to the students, I could ask them how they felt about various things um, and then talk to the teachers afterwards and get some feedback. So this really helps me personally understand how this should be developed. So when we first developed the um, teachers PowerPoint, it was done by um, everyone in the in the steering committee of the IREC. We then last year put the paper, uh, the sorry, the PowerPoint out for public consultation, and we had lots of people, including many teachers, give us some feedback on how it can be improved. I mean, one big problem, for example, is trying to be gender inclusive so some people felt that um, we shouldn't be and that we should just talk about men and women and that it was wrong to um, bring in uh, discussions about different genders etc into the classroom and obviously we had the other end where people felt that it was not inclusive enough and we definitely shouldn't use the words men and women um, and that we need to understand that there may be people who have periods who don't identify as a woman etc etc so we've tried to please everybody, but I really think it's impossible. So we have decided in the UK version, we will use male and female throughout. And we have made it clear to the teachers that they need to decide how they want to use this. And they, they're welcome to change the content of any slides. It will be totally editable. Um, so if they want to use different language for their particular classes, they can. And I think a really good idea that my master's student said is that they should ask the kids that they're going to, going to teach what terms would they like the teachers to use in the classroom to, to keep it simple and to keep it flowing, but to not, not cause offence. So that's a sort of example of um, where we're going with that. So, yes, it's really exciting. After years of planning, um, the uh, the the teacher's resource now has been approved by many, many different groups of people, and it's now being um, sort of made to look much better. It's been upgraded by the graphics people at the ESHRA office. So we're looking forward to this being freely available on our website. Um, I'll just tell you now, the website for the IREC is www.eshre.eu slash I-R-H-E-C, I reckon, yeah. <laughs> just make sure I get that right. Um, so if you put that in, you'll be able to get to any of the information that I've told you about. Now, from, from the talks that I did in schools, I was asking those that have periods in the class how they felt about having a period. And the responses I got really were quite heartbreaking. And the 
people were telling me that they had back pain and, and nausea and headaches and that they bled for a long time or had irregular cycles, etc. And I thought, right, I need to do some more research on this. So we did a research project last year. We did eight focus groups with just under 50 15-year-old girls to ask them about their periods. And we made some recommendations to the Department for Education. And this research will be published this year. It's not, it's not out yet. But the girls told us that, for example, the uh, toilets were not fit for purpose. They were uh, not a good place to be able to change your period product. Um, there were not often they didn't have access to period products at school. So if they came on unexpectedly or needed to change something and ran out, they normally asked their friends. Um, they also sometimes needed to go and change a period product during a lesson. And more often than not, the teachers were very reluctant to let them out of the class also rumours about some schools locking the toilets during the uh, classes. Um, and they didn't really feel that supported at school, but did feel quite supported by their peers and relatively, relatively supported by their parents. But one of the big things, which is what I always suspected and I'd heard when I'd spoken to teachers about this, is that many schools separate boys and girls um, which is tricky, really, if you're trying to be inclusive, but they separate boys and girls um, for some sex education. And it's more often than not the discussions around periods. So girls would have a lesson about this at primary school, normally trying to capture them before they start their periods. And then they should have a follow up when they're about 12 um, in their secondary school or high school. Um, unfortunately, the girls we spoke to, they were. Um, 12 at the time of COVID and many of them had missed this lesson, this second lesson on periods. But if you really think about it, are two lessons enough to really give girls education and support around periods? And I don't think they are. And what had happened is that it seemed that the, in the majority of circumstances, the boys had no education at all about what happens during a period. So guess what? The girls were feeling very unsupported by the boys, their peers. They, um, the boys were often jokey and ridiculing them about it. It really had stigmatized having a period, which surely is not what we want to do. Now, the teachers told me, but the girls need to have a safe space to talk about their periods for sure. But the girls were very, very adamant, 100%. They want the boys to be taught about this. So I, I've recommended that schools need to teach everyone together and then maybe they could offer separate small group uh, tutorials or whatever, or discussions with girls um, where they could ask uh, questions or in today's society, allow a digital way for girls to ask any questions that they have about their periods. So that's all fed into the teacher's um, educational resource. And we're now very excited. It's going to be online. It's going to have to be translated into different languages and it's going to be out there. So, you know, I, I just feel so excited, a project that I've put so much effort into, uh, along with many other amazing people. So I'm really glad that it's it's going to get out there. So the next thing I wanted to tell you about was back in 2019, when we 
initially set up this international education group, the first thing we did was develop a fertility education poster. So we had nine things you should know if you want to have kids in the future. And when we did this, we did something that was really quite wrong and which I've really learnt over the years is not how you do it. And what happened was there was a small group of us professionals that have worked in this area for decades and we thought we know best. Let us just get in a room, write this uh, poster and um, we translated it into over 30 languages and it's it had quite a good response. But the problem we did, and this is really essential for all education programs, is that we didn't involve the target group in the development of this resource. So this is something that's now absolutely set in stone. Whenever we're developing any educational resource, we will involve people from the target group and get their input. So what do they think about this? Is this fit for purpose? Is this the information they have a gap in their knowledge for? And are we presenting it in the right way? So what we did last year was I ran a project with young people where we gave them the fertility poster in advance. And then we did a number of focus groups with them to ask them, what do you think about it? Is it causing any offence or anxiety? Did you learn any new information from it? Was anything unclear? And we went through all the nine points on the poster and looked at how we can redesign this to aim the poster specifically for young people. So it was great. We hope this research again will be published this year. So the poster now has been um, evaluated by the IREC and by the Escher Executive and it is now, again, with the Eshra graphics people who are making it um, accessible now and, and doing all the graphics and things so that it will be accessible on our website for free for anyone to use um, in the very near future. We will also be translating this again, the new version, into many, many different languages. And we hope, for example, that teachers may use this as an extra resource resource when they're teaching specifically about fertility and we hope that it might be up in GP surgeries it might be on the walls in schools and that people can use this as a conversation point and that the young people also told us that we need to do more with social media and we need to do more with influencers so we will certainly be um, exploring other ways that we can get this information out there so um, also what we want to do is produce some information leaflets for the public. Now, I know information leaflets are a little bit old fashioned, but I'm looking on at these as the building blocks to use on various social media campaigns and other more funky ways of education. But we're just getting the facts down that people should know. So, for example, we're doing one on endometriosis. Um, we've written one on polycystic ovary syndrome, um, fertility, etc. And those two conditions I just mentioned, endometriosis and PCOS, I was really quite horrified in our school survey that we did in, in all the countries showed the same data. These are two very common disorders of the reproductive system. They affect about one in 10 females, both of them. 
And they, there's often a long time for diagnosis of these conditions. And, and endometriosis gives um, women really, really painful periods that cause a huge effect on their life, on their quality of life. And polycystic ovary syndrome has a number of symptoms that can really cause some issues for the sufferer. And they often have irregular periods. And these there's, there's many issues around PCOS. So what we found when we did the school survey is that so few, it's like two to three percent of the pupils told us that they'd ever learned anything about endometriosis and PCOS. So I thought that was absolutely unacceptable. And whenever I gave the talks in schools, I had people come up to me and say, oh, I've got that. Um, oh, I think I've got that. And obviously my advice would be to go and see their doctor and get everything checked. But it's just unbelievable that we're not teaching young people about these conditions. And it doesn't take long to just say what it what it is, what the symptoms are and what the treatments are. So there, there is information about both of these in the teacher's guide. And we've also got these information leaflets. So if anyone's got any issues or any concerns, they've got a really evidence-based place to go and look for information. So that's everything we're doing with the, well, not that's not everything, but most of the things we're doing with the IREC. And there's lots of other exciting things coming in 2024. So it's it's been really, really great. But let's now move on to the menopause. So this time last year, I'd been doing a lot of research about menopause. I'd um, heard through my surveys from over 6,000 women about their views and attitudes to menopause. And I'd asked them how we could help. And I'd also run a menopause survey specifically aimed at black women because they were very underrepresented, um, underrepresented on my other surveys that very few of them had replied so we did some marketing and, and targeting for black women to complete the survey and we're analyzing that data now and in 2024 we're going to roll out the same survey specifically aimed at asian women so we can hear from everybody and um what the women told us you're not going to be surprised is that they really didn't understand um, anything about the menopause or very little about the menopause there were so many myths out there about the menopause and that's one of the things the podcast is trying to do to debunk some of these many myths about all sorts of topics and social media really propagates these myths so um, they wanted education they absolutely wanted education and they wanted support they wanted support at home at work everywhere so We also <clears throat> repeated our period focus group project that we did with the 15-year-old girls. We repeated that last year with perimenopausal women. So I wanted to hear from women at the start of their reproductive health journey, uh, their menstrual cycle journey, when they start their periods around the age of 15. And I wanted to hear from women who were now at the end of their fertile years <clears throat> and they were... Um, almost at the point where their periods were going to stop and how did they feel about the period so they the two projects were very much hand in hand and there were similar some of the questions were the same now we've published this paper it's out now in the journal called post reproductive health which is the british menopause society journal um, so you can have a look at what women said what perimenopausal women 
said about um, having um, their periods and how they've changed at the perimenopause. And I think the, the key messages are that their periods now became very unpredictable. Um, obviously, their periods are going to stop at some point. One woman said that when they stop, she's having a party. <laughs> I love that. Um, so the women said that um, many of them had had quite regular cycles their whole life. Now the cycles were really irregular and often there was no warning. So they said they'll be you know, out at dinner or they'll be having a meeting at work or whatever, and they could just come on their period. So that obviously, it puts them on edge all the time. Sometimes they didn't even get a stomach cramp that they used to get before it happened. So they really got caught uh, unawares uh, with their period, and it was quite common. The periods had become generally much heavier. Some had them much lighter, but heaviness was a big problem. And lots of the women were having much longer periods than they'd had before. And then they also felt their premenstrual syndrome had got worse. So for some of them, and they really wanted support. They wanted support at the, in their workplace and at home. They wanted people to un understand that if they're really having a heavy period, maybe for one or two days, it would be more sensible to work at home so they could be near the toilet to continuously change their period product. Um, if they didn't need to be in the office, that should really, really be allowed. Uh, so th there was more in the paper than that. I'm just, you know, please read it and read their words on on how they um, describe this. So with all this work together, this time last year, um, I was thinking about how we move this forward. And then during spring, we had some key meetings at uh, my university, University College London. And I realized that there were lots of people at UCL who were working on menopause. And I, one of the things I absolutely love doing is getting people together. So I got these people together and we brainstormed. What can we do? What can we all do to improve menopause education and support? And my colleague, Shima Tarek, came up with a great idea. Let's make a, a UK program that we deliver hopefully to every woman, let, let access to every woman who where we teach them the basics, well, quite a lot. We teach them what they need to know about menopause and they also get support from their local community because I know for sure there's nothing more supportive when you're going through a particular uh, time in your life of being with other people who are going through that same um, experience. So, for example, when I was pregnant, I used to drive quite far um, to a pregnancy yoga class because I just loved being in this room with all the other women who were having piles and indigestion and all the other problems that I was having. And it was so supportive to be with them. So we got a fabulous group of researchers together with, with me and Shima is Nikki, uh, Polly and Flory. And we got funding from UCL Innovation to set up a network of people who could co-design. We're back to that co-design. Again, our group could sit in our offices and write this program and develop it. But we absolutely want to hear from everybody. We want to hear from um, the LGBT community, neurodiverse um different cultures, people that don't have English as their first language, 
you know, everyone we can. We want them on board and we want to hear from them. So our two main aims for this is to get it co-designed and be as inclusive as possible. So we did, we've done a lot. We've um, set up a brilliant advisory committee and we look on the advisory committee as critical friends. We will present to them uh, the way that we're doing this and we want them to tell us really what they think and give us their feedback. So we've got a great committee and I'm very pleased to announce that we have just joining the committee now, Leslie Regan, who's the Women's Health Ambassador, Dame Leslie Regan, and Carolyn Harris, who is the Women's Health MP. Um, so they're going to be fabulous um, additions to this advisory committee. We did a fabulous workshop last year as well. We had over 50 people and we said to them, okay, this is our thoughts. What do you think? How would you like this to look? Are we involving everyone we should? Are we listening to everybody? How should we progress with this? And it, it was the most fabulous day. And we'll hold another similar workshop towards the end of year one when we're a little bit further down. So in the meantime, what we have done is we've got ethics committee approval from UCL so that we can do some research and publish our data. And we have some focus groups starting. So we're going to run about 10 to 12 focus groups with all different types of people. And the first two are going to be online. And Shima is leading these. And we're just putting out the adverts now for people who want to be involved with the first uh, set of focus groups. But we will be having different focus groups for different people. Anyone can come to the first two. Um, and they're both online, as I said. So if you're interested in these, then uh, please get in touch and um, we'll uh, hopefully get you involved. There's consent forms and information, etc. to read through. So we're going to run the focus groups and in there we're going to ask the people there, what do you want this to look like? How can we educate and support you on the menopause? Uh, then we are doing a survey because obviously the focus groups, they're great because they're really in-depth and they really give us a lot of information about um, uh, what people are thinking in the, in, in the group. And it, they're very in-depth. But we want to spread this. We want to hear from everybody. So we are also launching our survey. It will be out by the time you listen to this. Um, so we have a survey. It's quite a simple survey asking everybody who anyone who is going to experience or has experienced the menopause can fill this in we want to hear from you how you want this program to look so the the questions actually mirror the questions that we have in the focus group but obviously with a survey you can't we have space to write more but with the focus group there's more discussion <clears throat> so um it's going to be really exciting to start getting the data in from the focus groups and the surveys to see what people are thinking about this. And then we are going to be applying for a big grant to help us develop this program. And it's going to be a suite of offerings. It's not just going to be one program. It's going to be different programs for different situations. Um, for example, we feel there needs to be something like Menopause 101, where um, women and any anyone anyone at all uh, probably be online only 
we give them the basic information about what the menopause is and what the symptoms are. Because then when women are actually going through it and are having the symptoms and are in the what we call the perimenopause, perimenopause phase, so before their periods actually stop, those are the women we want to come to the main program because you need to be going through it so you can get the support from your peers. So we need to make sure every woman understands when they're actually in the perimenopause. My research shows that many women didn't realise for years that they were in the perimenopause. They thought they were really ill. They thought they had some other problem. They thought they had cancer or, you know, dementia, etc. So we need to be sure that everyone understands what the perimenopause is first. So it's very, very exciting. I can't tell you. Every time I have another meeting, I'm, you know, jumping up and down. So exciting. This really is such a brilliant project. And I can't wait till we deliver the first course. I'm, I'm very excited about it. So um, I just want to say one last thing about one of the research projects I've been doing for years. So back in the early 90s, um, I was very much involved with a method of embryo testing for genetic disease. And we um, had this procedure that we, we only used it in my lab for people that were at risk of transmitting a genetic disease to their children. But it was used quite early on as a method that could be rolled out across all patients going through fertility treatment. Um, I won't go into the ins and outs of it. It's not really relevant. But what I was aware of very much in the early 90s was that people were marketing this procedure. It was originally called pre-implantation genetic screening or PGS. It's now called PGTA or pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. Sorry, it's so long. And um, there was no evidence that the claims people were making, they were making the claims that it was going to improve your chance of getting pregnant by IVF. And there were there was no information, no data, no scientific studies that showed that. So I became quite obsessed with the need for evidence-based medicine and for if you're making a claim, you need to back it up by science or don't make the claim. So this is evidence-based medicine. And back in 2011, I published my first paper. The Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, who govern fertility treatment in the UK, they developed a traffic light system to help patients with, with that technique I mentioned, but also a many a list of other techniques that are offered in the IVF clinics with the claim that they're going to improve your chance of having a baby. And these are called IVF add-ons. And I was part of that committee that uh, of the HVA that developed this traffic light system. And uh, ESHRA, uh, back to ESHRA, um, they often develop guidelines. And I was part of the committee that developed the ESHRA, what we called recommendations on IVF add-ons. And um, the HFEA's list is only 13 add-ons. Um, with ESHRA, in our paper that was published last year, we looked at 42 add-on. So that was a big, huge piece of work that I did last year. Um, so that is out there now. And just following on from that, I went to a lot of health tech events and femtech events last year, and I spoke at many of them. And I see the same thing happening. We are being overtaken by tech. And I just really worry that there's so much where there's no evidence that this tech actually benefits anybody so femtech is tech that's aimed at women 
I've heard so many things. I'm sure you're aware of people saying this um, uh, shake or this supplement or these pills will help get rid get rid of these symptoms. And this test that you can buy at home will help you with information. And my my sort of tagline that I've been saying last year was, is this empowerment or exploitation? So my advice to everybody, if you have something wrong with you, if you think you've got something, if you've got any symptoms, don't self-prescribe with some lotion or potion. Go to see your doctor. Don't pay to have a test done privately. Go to see your doctor and get things done properly. Just be very aware that most of the health tech and femtech has no evidence. It's it's anyway, so it's a minefield. I'll I'll tell you more about that. But we also have um I, I help run the UCL Institute for um sorry um International Women's Day events. So International Women's Day is the 8th of March, and every year we have a, a suite of events that we run at UCL. And on the Wednesday, the 6th of March, all the all the events are open to anybody, they're all free. So please keep an eye out on my social media for these events please come along. And on Wednesday the 6th, we have an event um, that's going to look at uh, innovation. It's going to look at health tech. It's going to discuss some of these. We're also going to have a discussion about our menopause um, program during that day. So please come along. So I I just want to finish saying a few things about work. I love public speaking. You're not going to be surprised. I love going to conferences. I had a wonderful year last year. I went to Mauritius. I went to Japan, um, many UK conferences, uh, Morocco, you know, wonderful places. So I'm looking forward to a fabulous year. I've also already done one conference this year in Oslo, which was just totally amazing. And I do do corporate talks. So if you're in a company and you feel that it would be useful for me to come and give a talk, about any part of reproductive health. So from puberty, periods, fertility, infertility, through to the menopause, I am quite happy to come and give talks at people's companies and help educate everybody about these topics. And sometimes we get some men in the room. So I'm just, I'm just going to finish off by uh, talking a little bit about work-life balance. Um, for me, I'm, I'm a single parent with three uh three boys. One is finishing university this year. My twins are going to university this year. One is more than likely going on a football or soccer scholarship to the US. So it's a big, big change. And I certainly found these years from 16 to 18, especially having two children and on my own, you know, with learning to drive exams, thinking about uni, it, 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 it's, it's been very stressful to say the least. It's been a difficult year. I've tried to be balancing that work-life balance. So um, I I love to spend some Monday morning, not every Monday morning, but some Monday mornings going for a, a kayak with a group of people. Um, it really settles me and sets me up for the rest of the week. I think I did it twice last year. And then Thursday mornings, I have a lovely swim at my local lake. It's nice and early. I can get, get on to work quite quickly. I think I did I did it once last year so I really realized at the end of the year when I was reflecting on 2023 that I definitely let myself suffer a bit last year I did do some swimming with my friends I did do some kayaking I I did do lots of dancing 
Uh, if you follow me, you know that I love dancing and I, I did get that in. But um, I'm really going to concentrate on myself this year. And on my vision board, I'm again, if you follow me, you'll know I'm very much into vision boards. On my vision board, I do one for work and one for home. And on the work one, I put some um, things like I put exercise and walks and I put one about swimming. And I really want to make sure that I don't sit in this room all the time working and don't think about myself. Don't go for a walk. I live in a lovely village. I've got beautiful walks on around me. I need to get out in for 15 minutes in the afternoon and, and do a walk. And I'm really getting um, much more in a routine with my exercise. I've been really good for about the last two months um, making sure almost every single day I go to the local gym and, and get a class in or two. Um, so I'm feeling really strong. I'm feeling in a really good place to start this year, but I've got to find that work-life balance. And um, maybe this is a bit too much information, but I've been single for 10 years, almost sort of. Uh, so um, in 2024, <laughs> with the kids flying nests, etc. I I'm going to look for love. So let's check it next year and see how I've got on. And I know it's hard. It's a real minefield out there. And the very last thing I want to say is another big project for me in 2024 is preparation for my next book. So my next book is going to be probably called something like Good Health and Happiness Over 50. And I am going to interview 50 women over 50 who feel they are mostly happy. Now, I know not everyone's happy all the time, but I'm going to ask them about different aspects of their life and prepare this into a book to try and give people some nuggets of um, great advice and motivation to maybe help them find a bit more happiness in their life. And I know we've got children to worry about, aging parents to worry about, our own health, etc., work, money. But I really hope that this book will give some inspiration to people to look after their good health and happiness. So I'm hoping that in January 2025, that will be the title of my first podcast of the year good health and happiness. And I will tell you how those interviews went and what I learned as well about health and happiness. So I haven't been too bad, 46 minutes, at least it wasn't an hour. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I really look forward to hearing any comments. I've gone quite red. <laughs> um, so happy new year again. And please tell me what you think about the podcast, anything else you want me to cover. And thank you very much.